KaiserCast episode 28. We are going to speak with Brian Rozdilski today of Thermotron X. Someone that we haven't really had any conversations with ever, at least I haven't. Um, Chloe attended a webinar of his that was on ovens, and um, it was a really good one, she said. And we're always looking for guests that are really rooted in the finishing industry. So we reached out to him and he was uh, kind enough to say yes, no problem. He wanted to get on as soon as he could. Um, and so, so, like I said, we don't know much about him or what he does or what the Thermotron X does. So he's going to give us all the details on that. And we're hoping that we're going to learn a lot. Um, but before we talk to him, um, we're going to talk about social media like we normally do. But um, more of a basically the comments that happen on social media essentially they usually <laughs> they usually don't mean comments I guess or mean if you want to like mean tweets um, mm -hmm. they usually don't bother me like even if they're you know directed at me or an attack at me or something they usually just I ignore it um, but it does get frustrating over time I guess. I mean, are we happy to see them? Yes, of course, because it means engagement on our post, right? Like there's no such thing as bad publicity. I just, it makes me, I guess, tired is the word I'm looking for. Just the lack of nuance that we see. And I'm not even talking necessarily about people who are like trolls, right? Like there's a subsection of social media users who are just out to be like verbally abusive, no matter what. And like, you know, we all know these people, it's fine. Um, I'm talking about even like well-intentioned people who will leave comments that are completely without nuance. Am what I do you explaining? Mean, what do you mean that by that? What does completely without nuance mean? So I just feel like social media like exacerbates the human, I guess, the tendency that people have to be very black and white. Like we're even more black and white on social media than we are in real life. Um, and I see it a lot in Facebook comments. Like there's no, there's no room for gray. Like there's no meeting in the middle. There's no acknowledgement that like my lens and my perspective and my knowledge might not fully apply to the conversation that's going on here. Like that doesn't make me less of an expert in my field. Right. But it's not relevant necessarily to the conversation that's going on that I'm choosing to chime into. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it seems you know, people are it's just like all of society. It's really polarized. It's frustrating from our standpoint or from my standpoint, because there aren't a lot of people interested in finishings and coatings and blasting. So when we make a post, a lot of them are meant to be educational or interesting. And, um, on like LinkedIn, especially there's people that are, um, that's where most people that are involved in the industry are is LinkedIn when we're posting. Mm -hmm. And so I like to be able to learn stuff from those people. Cause there's a lot of the people that are seeing our posts or that we're connected with have been in the industry a lot longer than me. And, and they're specialized. They're not running custom coding companies. They're at the, they're in the lab at a powder manufacturing company or a chemical company. So they're very specialized in what they're doing. And so 
I can make a general statement or, or the, the posts that we make are a lot more about the processes and what we're dealing with. And ours are a batch setup that's small in terms of if you compare it to really large automated facilities. And so we do stuff differently and it's not, it's not all perfect, but it's the best that we can do for our smaller scale. Um, and I still think we can put out a really good, really good quality product, but it, it just is frustrating when you get comments that are, um, honestly, whether they totally agree with what you're saying or they totally disagree, because I, I really wanted to generate conversation or be able to converse back and forth, comment back and forth with somebody to actually learn something. But it just seems like either it's 100% they agree and don't have anything to add or a hundred percent disagree and they think that you're wrong, but then also don't really have much to add in terms of like, well, I think you're wrong because of this, this, and this, because then that we learned something from that. But then also like right away, I have more questions to help keep kind of learning. And then I feel like then more people could join in to the conversation and, and kind of, obviously it makes our posts reach farther so like the more engagement that we can get the better it is for our own posts and our own gain i guess but it's more that just like uh, i want the interest of the kind of coding industry to kind of grow somewhat or to envelop more people um and if you're gonna entice new people to be interested in, there has to be some interesting conversation for them to participate in or observe you know, not just, it seems like a lot of the posts for finishing is just everybody just saying what they think and nobody really having a conversation about, yeah, that's correct, but don't forget about this or that. And then people all chiming in to kind of get, give you a full picture. Right. And it feels exclusive sometimes. Like I understand you know, that in a perfect world, we would all have multi-million dollar operations putting out like, you know, the highest quality, like most rigid spec type coatings. But the truth is that the average Joe has lawn furniture that they need powder coated and they need it done at a price point that is accessible to them. And like, that's why places like Kaiser exist, right? right. Like, yeah. you know, so we're going to be coding smaller projects at a lower price point with not the same degree of quality because that degree of quality is inaccessible to the average person financially. Right. Um, yeah. And we're in a weird um, area because like we can do really good quality um, and kind of like meet these difficult specs for corporate companies, but we also do the simple stuff too. So we we try to kind of right. navigate that down the middle. And so, yeah. um, some people would look at our facility and say, there's no possible way that you could meet this really, um, tight spec or like, there's no way that you could ever code anything for like Ford or General Motors. Or right. some, just something general like that. And that's probably a true statement. I mean, but currently we probably couldn't, but we probably could get there even with our current setup if there were some guidelines and someone to kind of tell us what they need. And then I think we could probably figure out how to meet it. But 
that's kind of the size that we are. And that's what the business that we're in is like, we need to know what the customer needs and then we'll adjust the best way we can to meet that. But we're, we're not in state of the art. Um, I don't know, 10,000 parts a day or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. the same thing over and over and over again, where you, where you get the opportunity to build an entire system around those few subset of parts. Um, and this process that gets to be the same over and over again. So you can like little errors and stuff you can tweak and, and get it to always be like 99% perfect, you know? everything that we're putting through is like different, 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 different. And we got to have, everything's got to be able to adjust and change and kind of find that average in the middle. Right. Which is what we post a lot about. And so there, I guess there's just not a lot of enough people that kind of work in that area. So you either get people that are commenting that think that like what we do is way too advanced, you know, right? or people that, are commenting that don't think it's advanced enough and they're both right. It's just kind of that middle ground where we, we we're lucky that we can service both, but there's not a lot of people that do, you know, we're, we're not this huge multi-million dollar facility that like, even if we wanted to, it's not like we're going to go out and buy this really expensive automated system Mm -hmm. because it's just not applicable enough for everything that we do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what I mean by nuance. It's like the recognition that different jobs have different specifications, serve different purposes, are at different price points. Like we're not, not everything is going to be um, the cookie cutter solution that commenters think is appropriate. Right. So. Yeah, I agree. And it's, uh, and again, it's not that their expertise is not valuable. It is like, we want to hear, right. Please comment. And even if it's like negatively, please comment. It helps boost our reach. It helps hopefully us learn something. Um, don't hesitate. I just, I wish that commenters could do so in a way that encourages conversation instead of shutting it down. I agree. Well, we'll just have to maybe try to work on figuring out a way to generate more conversation i wish we had more volume of comments which i think if the if it if the finishing industry was bigger or more well known by like mainstream people that we would get more and it would almost i mean you probably would still end up with this really great divide but at least you would have more on each side to build on since we only have like one of each or even only one side sometimes it's like you just you get that one comment and then it kind of just the conversation has to come to a stop because there's nothing else to to go on, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I have to believe that someone who's kind of newer to the industry than we are and maybe knows less than we do, I would be intimidated, right, to ask for help on certain things yeah. um, just based on the comments, like, we receive on our posts. Yeah. And we, we pretty much, like, we know what we're doing, right. you know, up to our degree of quality or whatever. But, yeah. like, even us, we get attacked all the time. Not attacked, but, like, we get reprimanded Constantly. So yeah. I can't imagine someone who is just starting out trying to figure out what works and what doesn't asking questions, like getting that volume of like yeah. blowback would be a lot to handle. Yeah. And it's like, cause sometimes you get comments about, um, 
and and obviously everybody gets these if you do any type of posting so it doesn't really matter who you are what industry you're in but you like post something like hey this is how we did this and it turned out great and someone will be like that's the wrong way to do that there's no way that turned out good and it's kind of like well okay but we did do it that way and it did turn out good <laughs> and we've done it that way a lot and it's always turned out good we've never had any problems with it so those are the ones that are kind of like i would actually like to I want to have conversation with those people, not to say like, Hey, we're actually right. And you're wrong. It's more like, why do you think that? Because then I, you might be able to learn something really. Cause they might actually point something out that we're not thinking of like, you know what? No one's actually complained about that or said anything, but yeah, you're right. There, there's a piece of the puzzle that we're missing and maybe we can adjust what we're doing and like prevent this problem that the person, the reason why they're saying like, Hey, that's not going to work, you know? So I just, I like to learn. So the more informative some of that stuff could be, it would be helpful, but yeah. So we will, uh, bring in Brian now from TTX and we're going to just get to know him basically. And hopefully we learn a lot, um, based on their website, they're pretty well grounded in the finishing industry. So. Um, we're going to figure out all the things that they do and if there's anything that we might be able to work with them on. I think we have talked to them a little bit in the past um, and they're more kind of the really large manufacturing facilities, kind of like what we were just talking about in open segment where we're on the smaller end and really batch oriented. Seems like they're more um, on the larger end and, and like full automation oriented, but um We'll see what Brian has to say. So I thought it might be good to start because so since Jace doesn't know you, Brian, I thought it might be good to start talking maybe about Thermatron X first and kind of tell us um, about the company, if you wouldn't mind. Sure, sure. I'll just you know, briefly start with myself. And professionally, I've been in the finishing uh, industry for over 20 years now, uh, mostly in a sales role, sales engineer role. I've been at uh, Thermotronics or TTX now for just about five years. Um, so TTX is a family-owned company. They're in their third generation, uh, located in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, and we build finishing systems. Now that is anywhere between ovens, washers, uh, material handling systems, overhead conveyors, floor conveyors, um, e-coat systems. So there's a lot of other components that go uh, in addition with ovens, but we fabricate all of our own equipment in Sturgeon Bay. All our engineering and service staff are located uh, in Sturgeon Bay, and we've expanded over the years. Now we're over 300,000 square foot of of uh, both engineering and fabrication. Uh, that is uh, a lot of facility. space. That's a huge. Yeah, facility. we're actually we're just adding on more for engineering. We're putting a whole new uh, mezzanine in for about 40 more engineers. Wow. So we've. We've been growing a lot over the last two years, and it doesn't look like it's going to slow down. And this year, it was been a very busy year for us. That's impressive. Probably, so is that? Yeah. do you guys service um, more than just the contiguous United States then? Yes, we do a lot of work in Mexico, uh, some in Canada. We've done a few systems overseas, but uh, we're mostly um, in North America. Okay. And I think I remember, because we... Uh, briefly like asked you for a quote on some batch setups, but I think mainly you guys focus on conveyor. Is that correct? Yeah, mostly conveyance systems. Um, so whether it's a batch, uh, we've done systems now with our new conveyors 
that will move the product automatically into the oven. The doors will open. A lot of parts come in, they'll close. Parts will dwell in the oven for X amount of time, and they'll automatically index out. So we're more in the uh, automated finishing systems instead of, say, a, a manual batch. There's a lot of people that, that do those, and you know, as we grow, it's been harder to do both at the same time. Uh, so we've, we've made a decision, you know, we're going to more focus on these, these automated systems. Um, that makes sense. Moving forward, yeah. And so what is your role there? Well, I'm a sales engineer, and that's, you know, what I've been doing for, I don't know, probably the last 15, almost 20 years now. So when a customer calls in and says, I want an oven, I want a system, it's my job to, you know, discuss with the customer, okay, what's your part size, uh, what are you trying to get out of this? Develop uh, initial layouts, proposals, and estimate the project. And then, you know, all the correspondence in between there. And then once the job is sold, it's handed off to a project engineer who then carries that through the rest of the project. So are you typically okay. going out to a facility if they're serious enough about purchasing and, mm -hmm. and you're meeting with them, looking at their facility to kind of see how that's all going to work? Yeah, yeah, it just depends on job by job. I mean, more and more these days, especially because of COVID, I, we haven't traveled that much. Um, but now it's it's opening up again, so it depends on what the system is. To get eyes on a site helps a lot, especially when it's a tight area, um, seeing what we can do to, to fit a system in there. Um, but it all usually starts with a 2D layout, just to kind of get a concept in front of the customer. And once we start talking, okay, now it's time to come down and really walk the area and look at you know what's what we can do here. So it's it's different for every project. So, so are your clients primarily powder coaters? Like, who are you serving exactly? Yeah, no. Industry wise, we're in uh, you know general fabrication. We do military um, appliance, heavy truck, like your Caterpillars, your John Deere's. Uh, we've over the last three or four years, we've started to get into automotive. Uh, we've done a job for Lucid, the new plant down in Phoenix, um, Honda. So we are we're growing into the automotive and, and the heavy truck more and more the, uh, these days. But uh, the systems we supply are anywhere from like powder coat systems, uh, e-coat, which is, you know, the part is immersed in a bath of, of paint, and the paint is either a positive or negative charge, and the part is the opposite of that. So it's actually almost like a plating process where the paint gets uh, adhered to the part, and then it has to be cured, just like a powder coating, some different parameters. And there's also a liquid spray, like a lot in automotive. They'll use either robots or, or manual operators to just spray on a liquid coating. So there's a lot of different technologies and painting applications that we get involved in. Um, when it comes to the, I know this wasn't on one of the, the original questions, but I'm really interested about e-coating. Yeah. Um, do you, I've done some research on it because the, when, the way I look at stuff, since we're a job shop, we're on the smaller end. Um, mm -hmm. we're, we're, there's a void between like, the amount of volume and what our customers need and want versus like the car companies that have their own full e-coat lines. Sure. When it comes to e-coating, is it the only way that it's economical is to have a really large line and putting a, a ton of parts through it? Or do you see that there is a batch type setup possible for e-coat? I know they don't oh, really sure. exist much, but I've always been curious, like, is there a way to take e-coat and cut, I don't want to say dumb it down, but shrink it down to where it's not on this huge fully automated line and there's oh, yeah, more, some more manual portions to it? 
Well, you know, that what you're talking about is a technology that TTX developed, again, a material handling uh, process that really put TTX on the map. Uh, it, a lot of smaller job shoppers were able to afford an ecosystem and it fit in a very small area. Uh, if, if you investigate our website, it's called SST. So it's a, it's a slide rail slide transfer. So everything moves at one time. So imagine um, 10 process tanks. And it's all immersion. So overhead is dropping down into the process tank. Okay. And all 10 tanks lower at one time. And they dwell for two minutes. After two minutes, they all raise up at one time, drain, and they move one station, say, down the lane. Okay. And then they all lower down. So we have a system called the county coat. Uh, it's the smallest ecosystem we make. Um, so the part package size is only five foot wide, a foot and a half high, and two feet in the direction of travel. So it's, it's very affordable compared to a, a I mean, it's still a fully automated. You don't need anybody to run the system other than load it. Okay. But compared to a much like a monorail eco, which is heavily capital intensive, mm-hmm. um, this is respectively you know a much more uh, economical very, option. That's interesting. I'm gonna have to look into so, this more. Yeah, so I mean, you can hang a, a bunch of different parts on one load bar or one big part on the next load bar. It's a very flexible uh, system. And you, can, you can automate the loading process. We have a transfer cart that picks up a load bar and automatically puts it on. And that's really part of our standard design. Okay. So it's a, it's a pretty straightforward system. In fact, the first SST we sold over 30 years ago is still in operation. And it was a smaller unit. So they're really robust. And they run forever. That's great. So how did how did you get into this? Where did you acquire all this knowledge? Uh, they don't teach it in school, that's for sure. Uh, actually, I what I did in my senior project, it was a we analyzed the capacity of a paint system at Caterpillar down in uh, Peoria. So we spent you know, four or five months doing that, and that once you put that on a resume, and somebody sees it, oh, he's a painting experience that's unheard of. So the company I worked for for about seventeen years hired me out of college, and um, just stayed in the industry ever since because um, it is a small industry. Not a lot of people doing what we're doing and, you know, every job is different. So it just by chance, I guess got into it really wasn't trying to, but I'm glad I stumbled into it. <laughs> yeah. So you said every job is different. I mean, I, are there, you know, certain types of problems that you're seeing arise a lot that you're trying to help customers solve, or is it really just like starting from zero every time and having to, come up with something totally custom well it's it's the same but different like the sst if you look at one or the other you go it's the same part may be bigger they may have a different stage in there they may have different you know curing requirements but the overall system is very similar it's just when you get down to the nuts and bolts okay this is a little different or like for a monorail system if you're familiar with that it's an overhead conveyor that moves continuously a lot of that is dependent on how much space the customer gives us you know, if there's a lot of space, then we can do a lot of different things. If it's, you know, if they get, we got to fit it in the shoebox. Okay, we got you really creative now, and it may cost a little more money to do that, but there's solutions to overcome a lot of different uh, problems that come up. So you you really got to start from scratch with every customer because every customer has a different level of knowledge about what they really want. Some customers right. hand you a 200 page spec. This is what I want, and you got to follow it to the letter. Some, I want to paint this part. How do I do that? So then we got to start, you know, all the way at the beginning. Okay, how big is your part? How many do you want to paint? 
what's your paint quality, what's your specifications. And sometimes they don't even know. I don't know. I just, I know I want to paint so many of these. Where do I go from here? So then we help those people connect with uh, chemical vendors and then people who supply the paint. And they're the ones that are really going to tell you, okay, here's how you have to clean your part. Here's the chemistry you have to use. Here's the stages you need. Um, and here's the paint you want to use. And then from that, they'll come back to us and we'll design a system to do that. That's interesting. So what kind of information um, is it helpful for the client to give you when they're seeking out your help? Like, can you give us kind of a list of what you might need to know? Yeah, what's really important is maximum part sizes. It's not too often that a customer, unless you're an automotive, you have the same part over and over and over. A lot of systems they do, there's they can have hundreds of different parts. Okay, what's your biggest part you want to process? That's going to be your part package window. We'll design a system around that. And how heavy is it? So we have to make sure that the system can hold and process and heat up that part in the ovens. And then we look at, say, for an SST, it's designed for a three-minute cycle. So you're going to get 20 loads an hour, a little more, a little less. So how big do we have to make that bigger to fit all these little parts on there? So it's number of parts per year or per day you want to produce, uh, your size of parts, your weight of parts. Uh, the area in your plant you have available. Because if you come to me and say, I want to coat 20 million of these a, a year, I'm going to say, okay, right off the bat, we need a monorail system. This, this is going to be a, a fast line that's going to take up some additional space. So what part, where in the plant do you want this? Can we go on the roof? Can we go outside with the oven? Um, that, that's really it. The num number of parts you want to produce a year and the size and weight of the part from that and the the painting technology you want to use. Do you want to use powder or e-coat? And that's obviously going to make some changes. Based on that, we can do an initial layout, something we can talk about. Is this what you had in mind? Do you want to make any changes? And then it'll come down to what their specifications for their, their coating requirements, you know, salt spray, uh, how long they want their paint to last. That'll determine how many stages they need in their pretreatment. So there's not a lot of questions um, to get a basic system. But again, like I said, a lot of, some customers have a lot of specifications because they know what they want. So it's it's kind of our sharing our knowledge with customers who aren't aware. Maybe you want to think about this. You really don't need that. And then it just it goes back and forth. I mean, we spend weeks and weeks sometimes, sometimes years, uh, doing multiple layouts for the customers and proposals and different options. So it, it's just about educating the, the customer on what's really out there and what, what maybe they want to invest their money in and what they don't to get the kind of quality they want on their part. So do you, are you generally dealing with customers that are doing their own fabrication and then want to add a coating line or do you deal with custom coders as well? Someone, I mean, similar to us, probably larger and putting through more parts than we do on a regular basis, but. Oh, both. Absolutely. Yeah, we deal with, with OEMs and, and custom coders that they're just there to paint the product and ship it back out. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we've been dealing with a lot of custom coders that are trying to bring more um, capability in-house. So instead of just painting it, well, we can we can fabricate some of this for you. We can do other you know, value-added uh, options for their customers. So we've been helping with that, with automating material handling. So once it comes off the paint line, instead of having a fork truck come pick it up, we can use a different technology to bring us right to the point of operation. So an operator just unloads it, loads it back on them when he's done, and brings it to 
you know, the next point down the, the road. So we've seen a lot of that happening too. Um, E-coat versus powder coat versus liquid mm-hmm. paint. Rough, is it roughly even on the amount that customers are asking for, or is it trending in a certain direction? Uh, that's a good question. I, I can only speak for the, you know, the jobs that I've been quoting recently. Um, yeah, we've been doing a lot of uh, e-code systems, like heavy truck, uh, your, your lift trucks, your, your booms, your skid steers. Um, since they're outside, the ego gives them an extra layer of protection and uh, quality on the paint, and then they'll put a, a powder top coat on it. So e-coat penetrates the part in many different areas where powder and liquid don't. Um, they call it throw power. So even in a tube, you're going to get some e-coat paint plated on the part inside a tube, not all the way down, but you will get some edge coverage that the powder won't get. So for protection, they'll put the e-coat down and then they'll put up a different color powder, you know, whatever color that they want. So, but yeah, we've been doing a lot of e-coat recently. But, so this you know, isn't a great question, too. but if, if you're, if you're e-coating a part, is it hanging on hooks? Like what are you, what are you using to lower it down into the vat? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Let me think about that before I speak. Uh, yeah, in almost every instance, you're hanging it off of a load bar. Um, sometimes, like in the automotive, it'll actually be a, a pallet or a skid that the body frame will sit on throughout the whole process, and that will be picked up with a with a carrier. But for most systems, you're hanging it off of uh, hooks uh, from a from a conveyor because you need to keep ground, both e-coat and powder. If you lose ground, uh, then the powder or your e-coat won't plate. So you have to clean your hooks occasionally make sure that, that you're uh, making ground with the conveyor. But yeah, hooks uh, hung on the carriers, and then the carriers are then attached to the uh, the chain of the conveyor. But there's a, a lot of different ways to do it. So typically when you have a, an e-coat system that you're designing or working on, usually is there a powder right after it? or Not always, no. No, it's, um, again, it comes down to... Um, what kind of performance do they want out of their paint? Like a underbody, car underbody, that's eco black and they're done. They're not going to put a powder coat on top of that. Okay. When it's, when it's you know, like a, a skid steer that's going to be outside or something that's going to see salt or you know UV, because typically eco doesn't perform very well with UV, so you put a powder coat top over the top, and that'll protect it even more so it won't fade. Right. So you mentioned you do a lot of customer education. Um, I'm sure like in your job as a sales engineer, that's true. And also I know you because I took one of your webinars. Um, I mean, what percentage of the day would you say you're teaching people things? I wouldn't say it's too much. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> no, too busy trying to work up layouts and <laughs> proposals. Um, no, I mean, one customer I'm, I'm dealing with now, it's, it's a lot of questions big system. So it, it's on and off, you know, he'll call and say, how are we going to do this? Or he'd have a question for me. Um, but we do do education through the, the CCAI. And I think the webinar was through the PCI. I don't remember now. Uh, so those are two, you know, education organizations just in the finishing industry. So they do webinars, they do uh, in-person uh, conferences, uh, in fact, the CCAI is the one that arranges the finishing system down at Fabtech. I'm not sure if you guys are, are going down there next week, down in Georgia. 
that's a very big trade show for the finishing industry. But they also have fabrication and welding and all the manufacturing processes are there. Yeah, we're not Will going, you be there? But... What's that? Will you be there? Yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We've got a booth down there. Okay. Someday so, we might have to go down there, but yeah, I'm curious about it. I always see about it on LinkedIn, and it looks it looks big. The, uh, the conference? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's really big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a good one stop shop for people that can look at all the manufacturing processes and speak to all the vendors they need to at one time. Yeah. You know, it's, it'll be in Chicago next year. It always switches off to Georgia, Chicago, Las Vegas, and then back to Chicago. Okay. But yeah, you got you got to go at least once and check it out. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I know you talk to a lot of different types of clients, but if we focus on powder coaters for just a moment, what oven, sure. oven technologies um, and configurations are available to us, and how do we decide what works for our shops? Well, as far as you know, ovens are are fairly simple. They haven't changed too much over the years. I mean, you just you're you've got a heating system recirculation fan now it's key to design it properly but the actual components to an oven are fairly simple um, and different configurations are going to be based on mostly your production requirements again if, it sounds like you have some batch ovens um, if it's a, it's a slower system bigger parts uh, it's going to be either a manual batch system just open the doors and it moves in and you close the doors for higher line speed it's going to be a multiple pass continuous oven where it's just you know, serpentining back and forth in that oven. Um, for powder coating, some customers choose to use IR, infrared, to help heat up that part and gel the powder out um, so you're not blowing it off when it gets in that high convection zone. Uh, so that's something, even after the oven's been running for years, we've had customers come back and go, you know, we're pushing it. We've cranked it up and we can't cure it out. So we'll go and we'll put an IR bank at the, the front end of the, the oven you know, again, depending on the line speed, you only need about a minute and a half or two minutes in front of those IRs to really do a lot of work. So once it gets into that convection zone, it's already at temperature, the powder's gelled, you can hit it with high-velocity air. Um, as I mentioned before, too, you can put ovens elevated in a plant, which saves floor space, or even outside a concrete pad. Uh, we've also put them on a, a factory roof, so they have no space in the plant when space is at a premium. Again, it comes with a little more capital expenditure, but the long-term investment pays off because you're not taking up that floor space with, with just equipment. You can use it for other purposes. What are your thoughts are on adding IR boosters that could be turned on and off inside a batch oven like what we have? Some of the parts that we do for um, the ag industry have really, you know, inch thick, two inches thick. Yeah, for sure. The, then those take a really long time to cure out, obviously, in, in the just a regular batch oven. So then your oven's tied up for a lot of the day just on a few huge parts. So we've been yeah. entertaining the idea of some sort of um, retrofit or to add some IR to our current oven. Because, again, like you said, space is at a premium. So it's not like mm-hmm. we can add a whole nother oven out in front of the one we have now that just has IR in it. Well, the biggest thing with IR is it's line of sight. So you got to make sure that those key areas or thicker are in the same spot every time, right in front of the IR emitters. 
Okay. Um, it's not going to get hidden areas. So if you have a inch thick plate and then you got another you know, three quarters thick plate behind it, it's not going to do anything. Uh, so you got to make sure that that IR emitter can see what you're trying to heat up. But I think that's a great option if if you you know I'm not sure what type of cure cycles you're looking at right now for those parts. Um, but if you pull it in there for the first five minutes and turn that IR on just to get that section up the heat up the temperature with the rest of the part you're going to have a better chance of curing it out. So since IR is line of sight, when you guys are doing a conveyor type setup, um, and since you're usually just hanging and then since it's kind of like parts hovering in the air, do you have IR emitters 360 all the way around to try to get every possible angle? Yeah, it depends on the, the part geometry. But, you know, if you're looking, like I think looking at a part hanging, you'll have it. Like almost like a C shape on either side. Okay. So you've got it you know, going up on the part, you know, perpendicular to the part, and then kind of coming down at an angle on both sides, just to get that uh, as much as possible enveloped apart. Then sometimes too, we'll put reflectors in between the emitters, so any you know light energy that gets through, it actually reflects it back on and try to recapture as much as you can of that um, infrared energy. Okay. Is IR gaining in popularity? Like, have you seen a shift in trends um, in your time at TTX? I don't think so. I mean, it's. I, I think that is the big issue with it, it is line of sight. So there's only certain applications you can use for it. We don't use it a lot. Um, in fact, some of the customers say they don't want it just because uh, they know what, what it's limiting and what it's not going to cure the whole part. But, uh, you know, there are certain applications where we have used it in the past. But I wouldn't say it's, it's any more or less popular over the last years. Do you have any experience with using UV to cure out powder? Our company has not done that, no. I don't think we've ever used a, a UV system. Um, it's relatively new, and I've only seen a few articles on it, so I was just curious. Yeah, I did have exposure to it at a facility in Tulsa. It was an appliance manufacturer, and they had one in there. And I know they were having issues with it when we were there. We, somebody else put it in. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is, it's not very popular. I haven't seen it a lot and a lot of requests for it. I think it's mostly used for indoor product. Okay. So once someone has works with you and figures out their oven needs and has something installed, um, do they come back to you for like troubleshooting and maintenance tips? Are you available to help them um, with oh, any sure. user issues? Yeah, we have a whole, a whole uh, service department, you know, aftermarket service. So we will support them with spare parts. And additionally, with any service requests they have, say a year from now, you know, valve goes out or having issues, we'll send the service tech out there and take a look and see what, what we can do to help them out. Um, so yes, we have, we have, we have that in house. How long, so if you're in a 300,000 square foot facility, um, is, are you guys mainly based out of just that one location then? Oh yeah. All, all of our fabrication is done there. Okay. Um, so do, we have very large tanks. Roughly how roughly how many employees are there at the company? Oh, it's, it seems like they're hiring somebody new every week. They're just they're trying to ramp up as much as they can, but it's it's over two hundred and eighty employees there. Okay. And that includes, you know, engineers and installation people and, you know, people that work in the shop. That's very impressive. And you said third it's third generation family owned. Third generation, company. yeah. And they started out actually it's a crazy story. The the grandfather 
uh, retired at 65, moved to Sturgeon Bay, got bored, and started a company, an oven company, with his son who just graduated college. So, and they were living out of a tent, making these small, you know, small batch ovens, and and that's how the company began. And you know, his son is still working. Uh, I'm working actually working for the grandson, uh, the third generation. So it started, you know, very small, and now we've we've grown very large over the last fifty. 52 years now. That's very impressive. Wow. Yeah. What do you think is next in terms of oven technology? You talked a little bit about UV. Is that like the next frontier? Is there something coming that you're excited about? Uh, As far as ovens, you know, I I can't, can't say I can think of anything that's really um, new. Um, What about the other pieces of equipment? Any more cutting edge stuff? That you're looking to well, yeah, I mean, investigate for, at Fabtech, maybe. Yeah, well, a lot of the new stuff that we're getting involved with is, you know, Industry 4.0. It's it's measuring and and being able to control you know, the system from remotely. Um, being able to know when something goes down, we've we've now putting you know timers in the system to tell them, okay, this this valve is cycled how many million times. Now it's time to look at it and check it out. So it's, it's knowing everything you can about the system. Um, at TTX, what we're most excited about is our, our ACC conveyors uh, that we developed three years ago. It's kind of the patented technology that we came up with for, for a customer to solve a problem, and it's taken off like gangbusters. If you know what an AGV is, a battery-driven vehicle on the ground, that you know, rides a path in the concrete, whether it's a magnetic strip or or just a, a GPS. We've taken all that technology, so it's really nothing new. We've hung that from a rail. So now we can drive parts individually through a system, uh, change speed, accelerate, decelerate, go backwards, oscillate. Uh, it's, it's very quiet. There's no chain. There's no lubricators. Uh, it's a very safe technology. Unlike it's like a power-and-free conveyor that's moving 20 feet a minute. It has a 4,000-pound drive on it. So if it catches on a column or piece of equipment, it's going to tear it apart. With this system, if something happens, it's just going to keep slipping. With friction drive wheel riding on the bottom flange of the, the I-beam. So it's just going to keep slipping and slipping because we designed it at the minimum possible uh, requirements for, for uh, traction. So that'll be at Fat Tech. We've just come up with a newer, smaller version now that um, is much more economical. I think a lot of people are going to like that. Just the flexibility gives you over a chain-style conveyor. That's really interesting. Probably a lot less chance for contamination falling down as well. That's exactly. I mean, that was the one, the first customer we did it for, it had a shot blast. It had a powder booth. It had, it had everything. And they were so concerned about, is this going to perform? Are we going to contaminate with this? You know, and it worked perfectly. We designed new slot seals. The slots, so this unit is not actually in the oven. There's a slot in the top of the oven that the hanger goes down through. And when we design shoe plates, they actually, you know, mechanical shoe plates that just open up as the hair comes by, pushes out of the way, and then it just snaps back in place. And it just, it works perfectly. So I think a lot of people are going to be, you know, excited to see this. We showed it last year, a bigger unit. This is a much more smaller, economical, but with all the same functionality as, as the, the bigger ones. So even like for a small job shop, if you just have one or two to move parts in and out. So now you just load the part, you tell it to go, it goes in there. Stops and dwells, 
Timer goes off, doors open automatically, it backs out and goes to the next operation. And all it is is an 8-inch I-beam. You just reroute that 8-inch I-beam with some switches. It's real simple. Wow. And this was in response to a customer need? Is that what, like, drives this innovation forward usually? Yeah, the initial one was, you know, we were competing against another uh, company, and they had a technology that was that we didn't have. So we said, how can we, how can we compete with this? So we, we brainstormed, and actually, you know, my boss really drove that that uh, design and said, here's the idea we're going to do, and we're going to go with it. And being a smaller company, we told the customer, here's what we're doing. And within three months, we had a prototype running on the factory floor. So they were able to come and see and look at it. I mean, it was very rudimentary. Six months later, we had a very similar to what we have today, hanging from a rail, moving 8,000 pounds across our factory. So wow. the speed that, that TTX can move and innovate. I mean, we really pride ourselves on innovation from the, you know, the SST that I talked about originally, to now the ACC. Um, we bring as much as we can in-house. We build our own bag filters. Uh, we, we're all constantly buying new fabrication equipment to bring all the work in-house. We're not relying on suppliers to build the equipment for us. So that conveyor system that you just described seems to be more um, interesting or advantageous for a company like ours where we have, we're a batch setup and mm-hmm. nothing's an overhead conveyor. But anytime that I've thought about doing that or we thought about doing that, it's always... Uh, cost prohibitive, but mainly it feels like it's almost going to be constricting because you, it's not very versatile. You, once you have that overhead, it's got to go a certain way all the time. And since we have a lot of different weird parts, we kind of mm-hmm. need, we need the flexibility to have individual carts on the floor that we can move around and swing how we need to. Um, but this, what you're describing, it would still give us that flexibility, but would add some automation to a lot of automation to what we do right yeah i mean it, it still rides on an i-beam so we can add actually we can put multiple lanes in your oven so this part would go on the left lane this part would go in the center and it, it's all built into the carrier so as so you load the information what you're loading on the carrier into the the acc unit so it knows okay this is part b i need to do this that and this and then back up and over here i need to dwell for this long because it's a heavier part so that that's all built into the, the PLC of that each individual carrier. That is a really good idea. So what's your educational background? Are you an engineer by training? Yeah, my, I get my undergrad in uh, manufacturing engineering, and then I later got my MBA um, from Roosevelt University. So someone who's listening to you talk about like your normal day and is thinking like, yeah, I could really get into this, you know, problem solving type of work. What, what route do you recommend they take to do what you do? Well, like, I mean, engineering for sure. Take an engineering, but you know, it really, another coworker who has been doing what I've been doing for much longer, his degree was in art. Uh, Another coworker that I used to work with, his degree was in chemical engineering, and he became a, pro- a PLC programmer. So I, really, I think just getting some education behind you and letting companies know that, yes, you can learn, you can be taught. Um, but exposing, I mean, that's our job, exposing people to this industry to know we're out there. I mean, you know, like I said, it's not a very big industry, but we have uh, some people that go to colleges and say, you know, here's, here's who we are, here's what we do. Um, mm-hmm. 
do you want to come for a co-op or I don't know what they do exactly, but just getting out there, you know, what our industry is and does, um, you know, education is key, but you don't have to be an engineer to be doing what we're doing here, at least in my role. Okay. And that's the one thing that we have been trying to think about and focus on is trying to get more people interested in the codings industry because like I went to school for engineering and I have a mechanical engineering degree. Um, and I, but the only reason why I knew about coatings was because our, my dad was, had painted for my entire life and had blasting mm. facility and, and was just starting to put in a powder coating facility when I was in college. So that's how I knew about it. But if that wouldn't have, if my dad wouldn't have been in the coatings industry, I would have never known anything about it. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, and it sounds like, like yours was yours was very similar aside from your senior project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, nothing about it. it. Just got randomly handed to me and said, "Okay, this is what I'm doing. I'll do it." And kind of, you know, just fell into this industry. So, again, just trying to get, you know, tell, you know, new employees or people who are graduating who we are, what we do. I mean, for me, I, I take pleasure in, in getting, you know, doing a layout, the drawing seeing paper and then selling that job. And then a year from now going back and seeing, you know, live it's bruising parts in somebody's facility now, but it all started with, you know, with this layout, even going to the, up to Sturgeon Bay. Cause I'm actually down in Illinois. Um, and seeing it being built in our facility. You know, I find enjoyment in that. Interesting. So how does TTX keep its workforce educated? Like how does, how do you stay abreast of, of new technologies and products? Well, we are uh, involved in the CCAI and the PCI. Those are, you know, like I said, the two main um, educational organizations in the industry. Um, but just through you know, going to Fabtech ourselves, you know, reading publications, uh, seeing what's out there, um, just trying to stay on top of things. There's, at least from a sales standpoint, there's no formal training at TTX where we, you know, every month go, you know, go somewhere and train. We'll have meetings, and you know, my boss will say, "Here's something else we got to look at. Here's a new customer, new company. Let's investigate them and learn what they do." So it's kind of informal. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I'm curious for for powder coaters who are just getting started, because I feel like that's the majority of our audience is you know small job shops um, like ours, but maybe smaller, kind sure. of getting their feet under them. What sets a good oven supplier apart from a bad one? Like, how can they tell they're dealing with quality products or even expanding past the ovens just just an right. entire system for that matter uh well yeah it's it's hard because everybody's going to want to sell their system and say that they're the best right so me personally i would speak with their customers um visit a system that's 20 years old and see how that system is is running you know if you look at a system that's been running for 20 years and producing parts and even um, with very minimal maintenance, I think that is a key indicator that that company is a good company. Um, you know, we, we've seen customers put in new systems, and within their first year or two, they're calling us and saying, can you please come help us? <laughs> um, so it, it's just doing your homework on the customer and the company. Um, because there are shortcuts you can definitely take when designing a system. It looks great. It looks good. But the fans undersized, the burner's not sized right, the ductwork is too small. And from a customer, you're not going to look at that and go, oh, see that. It should be the person building and know how to do it. And you should rely on them and, and trust them to design it properly. 
or even using components that are substandard where they'll work for a year or two and then you're replacing them every six months. So I, I think for me, just, just doing your homework and talking to people who have bought from that customer uh, for many years, not a new system, uh, something that's been, been in operation for a while. That's a really that good point. Sense. We deal with this, uh, with, with that. We've, because when we started, we just started from scratch with really small and basically the most economical that we could get in terms of batch booths and ovens and um, wash bays. And over time, you learn, okay, you get what you pay for, like you do in everything right. else, yep. obviously. So, yep, I, I just visited a customer last week that. I lost, it was actually in 2020, I lost the project. And they call, actually called and said, can you please come down? We can't get the system to work. I said, well, <laughs> you know, the system they bought was much cheaper from a foreign company, and that's exactly what you said. You get what you pay for. Wow. So I get to that point. During 2020 and COVID, I mean, from a from our standpoint and like a coder standpoint in terms of coding parts and and the difficulties that we had and, and also our customers slowing down. Um, and that's kind of the whole manufacturing process. I feel like that's, it probably affected you guys differently since you're in my mind, your jobs are kind of, when you go to design a whole system, it's kind of bigger and maybe fewer and farther between than like when we're just receiving parts all the time. So how did the COVID and then the supply chain, issues kind of affect you guys because for us like maybe it was immediately parts declined and there was nothing to coat but your projects are maybe and correct me if i'm wrong but they seem they're probably stretched out a little bit more last a little longer so it's kind of planning Mm -hmm. for the future and for the next year so how did that kind of send some ripple effects through um yeah what you guys were doing it would take it was really strange because typically our industry it's capital equipment so it's you know fairly expensive we're the first ones to get canceled. You know, hey, we're not going to spend millions of dollars on this paint system. We're going to ride it out. And we're the last ones to get back on the tracking again. But we, I wouldn't say we were super busy during 2022 and, you know, in 21, but we were we were busy. I mean, it wasn't a bad year by any stretch. The hardest part we had was was getting components. Okay. Where, you know, lead times were just for simple stuff that, you know, shipping off the shelf, motors, uh, controllers. It, it was painful. Um so just trying to stay on top of that and, you know, try to pre-order if we could in the hopes that okay, another job's going to come through, we can use it on. Um, I think that was the biggest struggle. And then it didn't happen right away. Um, but maybe, I don't know, early last year, we started getting hit with these huge escalation fees from all our vendors. Maybe it would just be like 25% on everything. And six months later, it'd be another 20%. And we've sold the job six months ago. Yeah. So we can't go back and go, ah, you know, we need more money. It doesn't work that way. Right. So those are some challenges. Yeah, we deal with the same type of thing. Ours are on a shorter time span, so we can hopefully, like, once the prices did go up, we were able to requote on a new job. But, yeah, that would be really difficult for something that large, those right. large capital expenditures that you already quoted and sold. How do you see it? going forward here is it now you guys are kind of back up to full speed or is there you still struggling yeah, i still think i still think there's some components that we're having problems with um but we've seen the material costs come down stainless steel carbon steel 
But on the flip side, we've seen labor costs go up. You know, with, with people having problems finding people, well, once they want to work, they want more money. Yep. So we've seen, you know, across the board, and I think that's from our vendors too, it's part of the increase. They're paying people more now. Um, but, you know, as far as outlook, I mean, I listen to the news rarely. I try to, but, you know, it's, it seems, you know, gloom and doom, but we're, I think everybody in the industry are, are so busy right now. Never seen this. You know, large jobs, they want them fast. Um, so that's our biggest struggle right now is how do we handle all these jobs that are coming in? It's hard to say no, but at some point, you got to be honest with your customers and say, you want in a year, we can't do it. So we either extend it or we politely, you know, pass on this one. Yeah, that's right. the same, same kind of situation that we've been in. I agree that it's busier than ever. It's every day there's another phone call or email about a new project. And you can, right. like you said, you can only say yes to so many. You, I, I absolutely hate saying no or telling, telling somebody our lead time because it's super long. But you can, at some point, you can only do so much. So right, right. I was just gonna say I'm putting you on the spot, and we can cut this um, if you don't want to talk about it or if it's not a good question. But um, what's the the yeah. weirdest request you've ever had a customer bring you? Like, what's the weirdest problem you've ever oh, had geez. to solve? <laughs> weirdest. Or maybe yeah, like most impossible, like fantasy kind of <laughs> scenario. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I can't be too specific, but the, the project I'm working on right now, a customer has been a lot of demands. I mean, I'm not, not being rude about it, but just they, they want to do this, they want to do this, but they're only giving us so much space. And so it's been a, it's been a big challenge, and it's not rare. Uh, that Customers want everything for very minimal, and they won't give you a lot of space to do it. So that's very normal, uh, but this one's been a challenge, and and I think we've overcome that, a lot of challenges with them, and I think we're hopefully going to deliver a great system for them. Um, but it's as far as weird, hmm. well, I, I don't know it's weird, but I had not myself, but another salesman was working on a project to, to coat bomb casings. Never would have thought you'd, you'd paint those, you know. But wow, that they should have wow. to paint them. Yeah. So and that's another cool thing about what we do is what we paint is, is everything, you know, from that to washing machines to high performance cars. So it's it's always something different. In fact, we just bought a new uh, new piece of equipment in the shop, and uh, last two months ago, the company that we bought it from came to us and says we want a new paint system. Can you supply us one? So that's kind of a cool connection there. That uh, you know. Yeah, coming full circle. Yeah, yeah. So it's. Yeah, it's very interesting. Why bother painting bomb casings? I'm curious. <laughs> well, I'm thinking because if they put them on a ship, they're sitting in the, you know, salt water, start rust out, you know, on a carrier craft carrier. Um, that's what I could think of. I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. Not for looks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just for corrosion the, protection. Right. So we're coming up on an hour here. I just... I. Um, always like to ask our guests kind of the same version of the same question, which is basically what yeah. is one thing you wish more customers knew or what's um, some general knowledge that you wish more of the finishing industry had or something you want to debunk? I don't know. That's a hard question. Um, it's just because you know, every customer is so different that, you know, it's the needs are different. The, the amount of knowledge they have is different and, 
Um, I can't put my finger on one thing that um, that I wish they knew more. Maybe they knew more about TTX. That, I mean, you know how much we're growing, and I mean, obviously we've we've come a long way. And yeah, I, I, I think that's a good one. Knew more about TTX because, yeah, honestly, the the only little bit that I knew about you guys and your company was just that Chloe attended that webinar, and then mm-hmm. and then from what you've told me today. That was, uh, I didn't, you know, there, unless you're out shopping for equipment all the time, which most people aren't, you right. don't, you don't come across the large equipment manufacturing companies. Um, and that sounds like that you guys are one of them and do a really good job based on all the things that you just talked about and all the innovation that you guys are working on, um, based on any, uh, equipment company that. I've worked with in the past or had quotes from in the past. It seems like you guys are definitely a lot farther along on the cutting edge than some of the conversations I've had with other companies. So that was really, yeah, yeah, that's I appreciate really interesting. That. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, our ownership really strives to innovate, you know, try to create new solutions for customers. Um, we're, we're definitely not a cookie cutter type of company. I mean, there are things that we, we do over and over, but we're, we're always trying to make, Hey, what can we do better here? How can we improve this? That's always been a problem. You know, how can we, you know, overstep our competition and provide something different to our customers that they're going to like? So, definitely. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to yeah, jump, no, no jump on a call me. with us. You didn't yeah. didn't know us at all, basically. And there's there's <laughs> honestly most people turn us down and say, "No, I don't, I don't want to be interviewed. Oh, really? I don't want to be on the oh, podcast." Hey, but it's part of my job, you know. <laughs> so I really oh, I'm appreciate glad to it. Speak to you. We're yeah, trying absolutely. to like like we kind of talked about earlier, we're trying to help spread um, some more awareness about the finishing industry because even though it is somewhat um, small, it seems like it's growing all the time, but a lot of people don't know anything about it. So that's one of our... Do you have a CCAI uh, chapter in your area? I don't know. I'm going to... When you said CCAI, I made a note of that. Chemical Coders Association International, yeah. I'm going to look that up and see if we can get become a part yeah, of that. They have a, a Northern Illinois, Wisconsin, uh, Western Illinois, Iowa chapter. I'm not sure Nebraska, what a close one would be. Might be I mean, if you just email them, they'll, they'll help you out. I mean, they've got uh, uh, books, like powder coating manuals. Um, I think they have e-coating manuals, and a whole bunch of literature and information to, to help teach uh, people who are new to the industry about finishing. Yeah, we're definitely going to look into that. Okay, great. Okay, well, have fun at FabTech. Someday we will attend FabTech and we'll try to connect great. with you and meet you in person. Sounds good. I appreciate your time. Yep, thank you. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, take care. So that was really interesting conversation. Um, first time that we ever I've ever talked to Brian, and he definitely knows what he's talking about. So uh, I was really interested in what he had to say about the e-code because I've always been interested in that. That's why I kind of stopped him and and ask them a specific question about that because I've always just seen these huge e-coat lines and I always think just like I've seen huge powder lines and well we do a small version of that in batch I've always wondered can we do a small version of e-coat and batch and pretty much everybody's always told me no so I'm gonna look into their website and see it still it did sound still sound like it's pretty automated and has a decent footprint in terms mm-hmm. of com- comparing to what we 
think of as the size of equipment, it seems like it'd be a decent footprint. In terms of what like huge manufacturing facilities are, it probably is rather small, but for us, it right. might be actually pretty big. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. They're very innovative. And now they, I've always kind of like said, I don't want to go to fab tech and not interested. But after that conversation with him, I someday would be interested to go. I mean, I like the trade shows because I always used to go to the racing trade shows, um, okay. P, or at least PRI, um, which used to be in Florida and is now in Indianapolis. Um, and it, it was like IMIS in Indianapolis at one point, And that was just all racing stuff. Um, and that was interesting because you'd always see new products and things. It was mostly to like make connections for sponsorship for like products and stuff or go visit the people that already sponsored you. Um, so it'd be a little bit different feel for me for a trade show for like something like fab tech where you're just going to learn. Um, but it could be interesting. I think, I think the technologies would be very cool to look at. Um, but I think I would look at a lot of them and be like, uh, too big for us, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So it inspire it would inspire me to like get bigger and, 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 and do more stuff. But it, we'd be talking about, you know, when he's talking about, you know, when Brian said at least their, their facility, which they need a big one to like make all these huge pieces of equipment, 300,000 square feet. Just to like give right. a perspective, I think if you summed <laughs> if you summed all of our buildings up, we would be at uh, maybe forty thousand. All of our buildings That's put together, big. which I feel like when we you know that we have three separate buildings for one for commercial residential painting, one for blasting, and one for powder coating. In my mind, I'm like that's pretty decent, you know, especially for like around the Lincoln area. There's bigger manufacturers in Lincoln than us, but we're like, when we walk people through, they're like, wow, three separate buildings. Okay. But when I, so at best it would be 40,000. So let's just for math, just say 50,000 to make it easy. And he said 300,000. So that's like times two times three. So six times the square footage so it would be six of our campuses like that's yeah that's wild and, and i'm assuming that theirs is probably mostly under one roof or darn close because if you had to make big pieces of equipment you would need a contiguous building to do that under not like a lot of outside like we have buildings but they're separate and you have to go outside to go between them so yeah it's not a small operation for sure So um, going back to our conversation about social media and people on social media, our social media comment of the day is kind of a perfect example of what we were talking about. This was on a TikTok video, um, and the video was about how we put foam between the part and the cardboard um, to avoid having the cardboard come into direct contact with the powder coatings. We don't want it to rub off. And the comment uh, on TikTok was, quote, then you use shit powder coating. You don't rub off 85 to 100 microns with cardboard. Well, basically, I don't. when we're talking about that we need to have foam between the cardboard and the powder, it's not necessarily that you're going to rub off the powder coating, I guess. So, so our copy was so the cardboard doesn't rub off the powder coating. I mean, he's taking it, or he or she is taking it literally in terms of that we're saying that the powder rubs off completely down to bare metal, I guess. So I guess that 
it's a literal translation, but essentially what what it what we were trying to say is like it just it's gonna scuff it up. It's gonna rub it's gonna rub on the powder coating. It's gonna, you know, rub through not necessarily rub through it, but I suppose, I mean, if you sit there forever, if you if you shift this thing back and forth across the country for a long period of time and the powder is rubbing against the cardboard, you will rub through it. You will rub it off. So you're yeah. you're sanding it off. Um foam doesn't really have that uh, abrasiveness that cardboard does. Cardboard is just a little bit more abrasive. Now, you could set, there was another comment, I don't know if it was on TikTok or not, someone very similar to this, saying that they never use foam and they've never had any problem. Um, and then we commented something to the fact of, well, if you're shipping them long distances, then you would have a problem. And this, this other guy or gal was, um, brave enough or a stand up person enough to comment back and say, ah, that's a good point. We don't ship stuff very far. So I could see where you would need foam when you're shipping. So there was one of my this favorite is nuance. <laughs> there's one of my favorite people that has ever commented back. Well, that was actually a conversation back and forth, you know, and it took some, um, humility, I guess, on my part to come up with a comment back uh, that was just like to not argue, right? Because for the, the way the con the so we're talking about a different comment now, but the way that that one it's same, it's same about cardboard and foam. The way the comment was was just very short and to the point, and like, um, you don't need foam. We don't use foam. We've never used foam. Kind of like flipping us off saying you idiot but in reality it was just like literally just quickly stating like we don't use foam we've never used foam and haven't had any problem just like stating a simple fact and so when we commented back like it's possible right so that's like what you said nuance i just i learned that i knew that i didn't really know the meaning of that word until this episode so <laughs> i learned something new today but when you put when you when you get stuff in different contexts and different perspectives then it changes what so it's like if you're we we didn't really foam wasn't as important to us when all as we did was when we just started was lawn furniture and wheels and car parts where we would coat them set them down and where they would not get touched again and they wouldn't even move until the customer came and we picked it back up and put it in their vehicle. Well, at that point, you could have set it on concrete outside if you just set it down nicely and never touched again and picked it up nicely. But it's when you're doing where you actually have some logistics involved, where you're shipping things in and out, having to move stuff around and reorganize, and parts are moving and hopping and you're going over bumps and cracks, then cardboard's probably not quite enough need a little bit of foam. One other thing that foam act really helps with is just some friction, some traction. Meaning like you, your parts could just slide right off a of cardboard, but the foam kind of provides a little bit of stickiness. The foam gives a little bit, the parts kind of sink into it a little bit. Um, and so the, and the foam's kind of just has a little bit of friction to it or traction on it, some stickiness. Um, to where everything just kind of sits better. So, I mean, 
you're not going to, he said 85 to 100 microns, and so whatever, three to four mils. You're probably not going to rub off all of that powder on the cardboard um, in most cases, even if you had no foam. But you will start to scuff it. You will it will start to rub and it will change color and you could significantly rub off a lot. Yeah. I mean, and if people don't believe us, just take a powder coated part, shrink wrap it to a cardboard pallet, ship it to California. We're in Nebraska, so ship it to California or ship it to North Carolina, a coast, and have it come back and just look at it. It's gonna I mean, anybody knows that when you ship stuff it gets damaged like crazy. Right. And especially right. when you're going to a pallet size and it's getting shipped on like an LTL less than truckload. Um, just getting freaking annihilated. I mean, let's be honest. When it's getting pallet jacked and forklift a hundred times and just rammed and like you're definitely gonna need you need more protection around the part. Right. So it has nothing to do with that we use ship powder coating. And maybe maybe this whole nuance issue or lack of nuance on social media is because people read everything literally. Maybe that's it. And maybe I've just missed that this whole time. It's possible. But like, why are we doing that? Like, we don't live life this way, right? Like we don't yeah. talk to each other this way. So I don't know. I think a lot of people do talk to each other the way that they comment, unfortunately. So it's wild. So anyway. All right, so we got a couple more Kaiser casts for this season. Some people have been canceling on us, but that's okay. Everybody's busy. We're busy again. I think Next week is Brandon. Yeah, we've got, uh, it'll be more pre-treatment focused, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, and then later on, in a couple of weeks, we've got another uh, powder coater um, that's from somewhere else in the United States. I can't remember, but but that will be interesting to talk to. That'll be more of just like maybe going a little bit back and forth, talking about experiences, you know. And what what we what we might want to do is put together some of these comments that seem ridiculous from all yeah. of our social media, <laughs> and 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 just kind of read our post, right? But maybe leave the comment off and just kind of go back through our old posts that um, elicited some like extreme response one way or the other and just kind of ask another powder coder, um, you know, hey, we when we package stuff, we put foam in between the cardboard. Do you guys do that? You know, and he might say no. And then we can actually right. have a conversation where there's context back and forth. And he might say, no, we don't. And then, then I can be like, well, are you shipping stuff really far? And he might say, yeah, we are. And then I'd be like, really? Okay, when we ship really far, like if we don't use foam, it's definitely hard. Have you ever had that? You know, because you need that that back and forth was what we talked about at the top of the show. That helps you understand and learn from each other. So that might be actually um, really interesting to talk to another person yeah. in the industry that we don't know at all, really. Mm -hmm. Um that's who knows if they're powder coat and similar parts or different parts than us um, to where we can, the so, social media is we don't, 
we don't get that back and forth because people are so polarizing, but also it doesn't, it's not instant messenger, right? It doesn't lend itself to this back and forth scenario where you're right there with the person and you can like, you know, I guess that you're, you're missing, um, you're missing nonverbal communication is what you're missing. Yes. Obviously when you're on the phone, you're not getting like visual cues, but you can, all of the audible cues and the way someone's pitch and tone of their voice is changing helps you clarify because you can understand, you can tell if they're not understanding or you can ask another, you know, you can go back and forth. So that's one of the main things that we miss on social media and why I think maybe they get so cut and dry on the comments and then you read it. They read the posts interpret a certain way. We read the comment interpret a certain way. There's no other nonverbal communication for us to kind of like piece together what's happening. And so like the meaning is, it's almost like a game of telephone, you know, where people pass it right. along and once it gets back to you, it means something totally different. Or yeah. the one um, video that I saw on YouTube a long time ago where there's two um, little brothers, like young, probably like four or five or six, and the dad is videotaping them or filming them on his phone, who knows. And they're sitting on the couch and or something, or the dad calls Marvin. He's like, "Hey, I want to tape you guys together. Videotape you guys together." And the kids, they're sitting there, and the one goes, "Okay, I thought you said you were gonna tape us together, meaning <laughs> tape us with scotch tape or masking tape. He wanted right. to be taped together." And the dad was like, "No, I meant I wanted, you know." We understand other people to the level of our own vocabulary, yeah. and not further than that. Yeah. Which is so interesting. Do we have any other comments? Do we have any? Do we have another social comment? Can you pull up a Mila comment real quick? <laughs> yes. I'm just I'm on a roll right now, and I'm actually. This is some of the. This is a. This intro and outro is even more colorful than usual. I feel like I'm usually very mundane, so I want to feed off of this right now. Sure. So. Um, another example of a social media comment that I think was, you know, that I know was well-intentioned, but sort of didn't work. Um, you had posted something on LinkedIn about how rust streaking can be an issue for outdoor parts. Which, um, and which so you, we just talked about on the, last, the other podcast with Andrea. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so it was a snippet of that video. Um, so then the comment was... During my career, I did a lot of white color exterior application and never had rust streaking. If you choose the right system and product for the application, please, Jace, don't fool customers. Tell them honestly that you are not capable of choosing the right system for their application by white color, but you will learn eventually if you connect application with specification. Well, first of all, my favorite thing to do is fool customers, so you got me. <laughs> we are in the business of fooling customers. But the... Okay, so... The, the rust streaking and white and rut, like that's, that's a big topic of, that could be argued on for like ever, probably. The reason why we wrote that blog originally, and then I'm glad that Andrea McKay, Andrea McKay picked that up and which we had her on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Um, and she liked it, liked the blog about rust streaking. Basically what 
the point is is that if you do something in white, the chances of seeing rust are high, higher than if you do it in a different color. And everybody kind of knows that, right? Like white gets dirty. Um, generally, in just like normal world, not in the perfect world, I know that we're trying to always achieve a coating that's perfect and has no voids and no pinholes. I get that that's the goal, and that is our goal at Kaser. But in reality, when we're putting all these different weird situations and different parts and different geometries, and it's an old part that's really rusty and pitted to begin with, then we blast it, and then we've got to get that pre-treated before it starts to rust. And um, there's, there's all kinds of scenarios that we're put in that make it so it's not a perfect finish. So when we have to do white on something that's outside, there's a high chance that at some point in its lifetime that you're going to see rust streaking, meaning that there's rust coming across the coated white surface and it's the coating's not flaking off, the substrate underneath the coating's not rusting, it's a weld at the top of the part that the weld had a deep void or pinhole in it to begin with. And we weren't able to get coating inside this void or pinhole we tried we got it the best we could but it didn't fully get it covered water ran into that and ran out of it deep down inside there there was some uncoated material that nobody really could have possibly got coated unless you dipped it in e-coat and since we didn't dip it in e-coat it's just raw metal way deep down inside this void and so water runs through that rusts it now, rusty water runs across. You get the rust streaking, which is what I've talked about a lot. And a lot of people, they kind of get it. So now this comment is saying that, you know, um, they've dealt with a lot of white on exterior application and never had any rust streaking. And if you choose the right system, that um, you won't have a problem. And that basically by me saying that you're going to have rust streaking, I'm, I'm just... Um, taking the easy way out and not figuring out how to to do a good job coding and just saying, hey, no matter what, you're going to have rust streaking. It's too bad. You know, there's no way around it. And that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just, what we're trying to say is that it's a, it's a possibility on white. It's more likely on white. And when we're dealing with reality, there's a really good chance that it's probably going to happen. Now, from a coding standpoint, we're trying the best we can to make sure that that doesn't happen. And yes, there are steps that you can take to alleviate some of that. You can blast first, so that way you get really good adhesion. You can do really good pretreatment. So if it's steel, you'd be using phosphate. Um, and then you could even use zirconium also. Uh, and then when you go to powder coat it, depends on the quality of powder white that you're using, but you could also prime it. You could either do two coats of your white. You could do a primer and then your white. You could do you could do all different kinds of primer. So there are ways to get it better. And over time at Kaser, we've gotten it better. Originally when we first did white and it was an exterior application, it was more than just rust streaking. The part was literally rusting on areas that like on welds or tight corners or where film thickness is thinner or where powder runs away from sharp edges you definitely have a problem because you can start rusting along edges and you're going to see it with white more than you would with black, for example. So yes, there are some things that we can do that we do do to make sure that those don't happen. 
but inevitably we're not going to be perfect. And usually it's because there's a hole or a void that we weren't able to get in and cover up anyway. It's it's typically, you're not going to see, if you have a flat, 100% flat panel with no seams or welds or joints, and you just ask me to powder coat this flat panel, and then it sits outside and like sticks to a wall. So there's like literally no holes or no fasteners, never damaged the coating anywhere. You're probably never going to see rust streaking on that ever because everything got 100% coated, essentially. So... Andrea's point too that I think is worth mentioning is, you know, for the average person who is buying one of her window well covers, do they want to spend $900 to have that primed and then double coated and then clear coated? No, they don't. Yeah. Right. Like, and so she's all, her only point, I think, in bringing this up was like, if you don't want to spend all of this money to put in all of the work to minimize the possibility of rust streaking, then I recommend you use a color, you know, against which rust streaking isn't going to show as much. Yeah, absolutely um, And again, that's true. like, that's the nuance there, right? Like not everyone has the budget required to make sure that this doesn't happen. Is it possible to make sure this doesn't happen? Of course. Is it expensive? Also true. Yeah, because it takes like, more steps. Yeah. If you're doing white and you want to make sure that you never see any rust, it absolutely takes more steps. It takes right. more time. It takes more products, takes different products, takes more of product, you know, so like, when someone picks white as a color to do something, it gets quoted higher. Out of our all, out of our stock colors, we always usually say that they're all the same price, and they are. But if somebody does pick white, and I get the chance to quote it, and it's not just somebody dropping it off, and we're just gonna cookie cut it and get it through, I'm gonna quote higher on white because I because there's a certain level of work that we know that we need to do to make sure that that white part doesn't come back to us rusty, and so. But it increases the amount of time that we spend with it pretty significantly. Yeah, so that's it's very true. You can get away with not mm -hmm. to not to say that you sh that you should be trying to get away with, but you can get away with not as intense of a process if you just use black or something, something that's right. going outside, and and it'll even though that you're being less intense with the process. That black part is still going to hold up just fine. You're never going to see any issues with it. It's not going to fail. Okay. But when you make the step up to white where it's just so visual, now we have to add some of these extra processes to make sure it's perfect. And could we use all those processes for every other color? Yes. But then on most of our small projects for the general public, we would be priced out of their mm -hmm. price range. They wouldn't want to do it. It would be cheaper for them to just go buy it new. Right. So. Right. And that's, again, what we talked about at the beginning of the show. That's the balance that we're between. We're trying to find that best mesh between a good quality product and meeting the customer's price point, which anybody that's in and around our area knows that we are mo nine times out of ten more expensive when we quote it compared to everybody else. But usually... Ours is going to last just a little bit longer or look just a little bit nicer. We know that it costs a little bit more, but we also know that we're generally spending more time with it. And generally. Right. So. And far from fooling customers, we're trying to have these conversations to be transparent. And educate. Right. Like we're trying to not rip you off. We just want you to know if this is your price point, we recommend this color for these reasons. 
Yeah. Regardless, keep the comments coming. Yeah, we love it. We love to see it. Gives us something to talk about. They're making noise, right? If you take, if you relate it to racing, if you get at driver intros and it's crickets, that means nobody knows who you are and nobody's paying attention to you. But if you get at driver intros and everybody in the grandstands boos you, might not feel great, but every one of those people knows who you are and has an opinion about you. So long as they're making noise i don't think it matters if it's good or bad until next time see you later